stand as we hear God's word read. Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Let's pray. Father, you are the God of all nations, whether they acknowledge you or not. You've created, you've owned, and you are in the process of redeeming people from all nations. Thank you for the work you have done in our lives. None of us are here because we were just pious by nature. We were sincere and honest and humble and and God-seekers. We are here because you saved us by your grace through Jesus Christ. We were all dead in our sin and trespasses. We were all in darkness till you brought us to the kingdom of your beloved son, raised us up with him. So we are grateful for what you have done in our lives. And open our eyes, Father, this morning, open our eyes to see a bit more about what you're doing in the rest of the world. And what our role is, our role is that you're calling us to have in the lifting up of the name of Christ among all peoples. So, Spirit, come. There is no power in my words. You are the one that can open up our minds, open up our hearts to receive your truth today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. I have enjoyed my time tremendously with your beautiful church, beautiful congregation. I, have, I speak around the, the country quite a bit. I've never, been, uh, I've never seen a congregation that is so intense in reading books and buying books and following up on the bibliography of the books I mentioned. And that always brings a lot of excitement. And I must say, I will forever remember your church as the church that gave me Johnny Cash's CD. Uh, and uh, so that's the first time. And uh, so you will be my memories. For, for good or for bad. <laughs> I have one agenda this morning, and my agenda is to preach in a way that will encourage you, will challenge you to move into God's missional purposes for your life. That's my only agenda this morning. I'm not here to talk about myself. I'm not talking here about, you know, the Muslim world. We've already done a lot of that this weekend. But I'm here with a challenge for you to begin considering what it is that God might have me to do here in Vero Beach, Florida, in your mission field. Your mission field is not my mission field. God, what is it, what is it that you want me to be involved with as, as, as your hands and feet to bring light to the, to, the, to the dark corner of the world you have called me to, to engage with and battle with. So that's my agenda. And I must say, I am really bad at persuading people. 
Uh, when I first got married, I, I, I was here on a student visa. I got married and got a work permit. And my first job was at the Fraternal Order of Police in Lynchburg, Virginia, calling people to raise money for the police department. And uh, I was fired after my first night at the work. And so I am not here based on my own ability to persuade people, but just trusting that whatever it is I say, that the Spirit of God uh, is present and God will do his work in us according to his own pleasure and purposes in our life. Yesterday morning, uh, it it was not uh, my sermon kind of took different directions for those of you who were here, but talked about the fundamental truth that our God is a missionary God. And if we are growing and maturing in our spiritual life, becoming more conformed to the image of this God, by definition, we must become more missional as well. Just like the Bible says, be holy because God is holy. If our God is a kind of God who is always going forth, who is sending his son, sending his spirit, sending his church to rescue and redeem people. That's the kind of God he is. If he is like that kind of a God in his own identity and character and life, by maturing in his image, we need to become more missional ourselves. So if we are, uh, so this is, so in this sense, I think we have to understand Charles Spurgeon's famous comments that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Charles Spurgeon, the famous Baptist preacher, is one of his uh, zingy comments. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Not that everybody has to be in full-time ministry, go overseas, not that. But every Christian needs to listen to the heartbeat of Christ and Christ's call on his life. So yesterday, I said that a more accurate reading of the Bible shows that the whole Bible presents us with the story of God's mission through God's people in their engagement with God's world for the sake of the whole of God's creation with the ultimate purpose of God's glory. Mission is not what we do. Mission is what God is already doing and he's inviting us to join him in that adventure. So if this is the case about the God of the Bible, then we need to define mission as our participation as God's people, at God's command, in God's own mission, within the history of God's world for the redemption of God's creation. It is God's mission, and the marvel is that God invites you and I to join him in that. Now, a number of years ago, I did a search. Things have changed a lot. But just less than 10 years ago, I Google searched mission of God. And you know what were the top links? The Blues Brothers. We are on a mission for God. The, the Blues Brothers were the, were the most popular links in the Google search. Now, things have changed because there are a lot of Christian thinkers that are talking about this message. I am particularly benefiting from Christopher Wright's book, The Mission of God, uh, as I'm sharing this message with you this morning. That mission usually used to be defined as, okay, you know, theology is we study about God. Mission is, it's our plan. What do we do now? But now we are understanding that our God is a God who is not a static God. He's not just sitting on the throne, just, you know, waiting for things to happen. He is deeply engaged in all aspects of creation to move forward his purposes for history. And yesterday, we focused very briefly on a key theme of the Bible, that God wants to be known. 
you know, in, in, the, in the Old Testament, there are not a lot of verses that sound like missionary verses. But one of the themes that the Bible is very emphatic on is that God is doing everything that he does is for the purpose of making himself known to all peoples. So everything he has done in the history of Israel with his climactic fulfillment in the person of Christ, it's done for the purpose of making himself known. And this morning, I want to continue this thought with two additional key elements in the scriptures. So this is, this is my basic simple point. God wants to make himself known to the whole world, to all the nations, through us, his people. God is in the God is in the mission to make himself known to all the peoples through us, the church. So uh, I know, you know, being by the beach is fun, but that's not all we are called to do, enjoy the beach. There is work for us to do. John Stott has said, mission arises from the heart of God himself and is communicated from his heart to ours. This is not, you know, a missionary speaker once a year coming to get you guys excited about mission. Mission is, you know, kind of tuning into what God is singing. Mission arises from the heart of God himself and is communicated from his heart to ours. Mission is the global outreach of the global people of a global God. Mission is the global outreach of the global people of a global God. So, Let's start with a text that we read this morning, Psalm 67. The psalmist takes up one of the most significant texts in Israel's rich vocabulary of blessing, the Aaronic blessing of Numbers chapter 6. I'm sure you're familiar with that. In Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26, this is what Aaron was supposed to um, pray over the nation. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. What the psalmist in Psalm 67 is doing is taking that prayer, and he, a prayer that he has heard repeatedly in his own worship at the sanctuary, and he does two things with the ironic blessing. Psalm 67 does a twist on that famous prayer, famous benediction. First, the psalmist turns its declarative form into a prayer. He's saying, yes, may God indeed do what these words say. May God, our God, bless us. So it's not just a declaration, it's a prayer. But also, he turns it inside out and prays that God's blessing may be the focus of praise, not only in Israel, but among all the nations of the earth. The particular focus at the center of this psalm in verse 4 is the righteous rule of God that will be exercised over the nations. And verse 6 also adds an economic factor as well. God's blessing through the harvest of the land. That's shalom. It's not just about spiritual blessing. It's the comprehensive shalom of God over all creation and people. And the final two verses of the psalm bring us to the climax of the universality that embraces God, Israel, and its land, and the nations, and the whole earth. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Somebody actually has called the Psalms the music of mission. If you, if you want to talk about a mission theme in the Old Testament... 
tune into all the times that word nations and peoples are used. This is not just about our God, our people. I work with Iranians. A lot of Iranians, of course, come from a Muslim background. And in the Islamic world, one of the biggest challenges is about the emphasis on Israel in the Old Testament. It seems like, okay, does God just love the Jews? Does God just love the Israelis? What about all the Muslims? What about all the Persians, Arabs? And that's a very tough question. But when you look closely at the text of the Old Testament, it is very clear, and we'll talk about it in a second again, that God chooses Israel. Yes, he makes a covenant with them. Yes, he loves and blesses them. But he chooses them so that through them, the rest of the peoples of the earth will know who God is. The other nations would come to worship Yahweh. The blessings is for all the world, not just one people group. And then, I'm not, we don't have the time to go into it, but if, if you're writing things down, Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 27, Zechariah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13, all pick up on this theme that bring God and Israel and the nations of the whole earth together. God blesses his people. Please listen, my American brothers and sisters. God has richly blessed you guys here in this country. God blesses his people so that through them, the world might come to know God and receive God's blessing. One commentator has said this about this psalm. The psalm is a prayer for salvation in the widest sense, and not for Israel only, but for the whole world. Israel's blessing is to be a blessing for all men. Here in particular, the psalmist does more than adopt the priestly formula in Numbers. He claims for Israel the sacred dignity. Israel is the world's high priest. And I love this next sentence. Please listen. If Israel has the light of God's face, the world cannot remain in darkness. And replace the word Israel church right now, the people of God. If we have the light of God's face, the world cannot remain in darkness. God's plan for the nations is the story that spans the entire Bible, my brothers and sisters. The nations first appear in the Bible in the context of life after the flood, God's universal judgment on human wickedness. By Genesis 11, the nations have been scattered in confusion, the Tower of Babel. The conflict of nation mirrors the brokenness of humanity as a whole. But the the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, comes to its climax climax with the picture of the nations purged of all sin, walking in the light of God, bringing their wealth and splendor into the city of God, contributing their redeemed glory and honor to the glory and honor of the Lamb of God, Revelation chapter 21. The brokenness is healed at the river and tree of life, Revelation chapter 22. And God's mission is what fills the gap between the scattering of the nations in Genesis 11 and the healing of the nations in Revelation 22. So from Genesis 11 to Revelation 22 is the story of the, of the work of God in the nations. The other day, yesterday it was, I think, I made a comment to the story of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. You know, as, as people were dispersed in the story of the Tower of Babel, all the people of the earth were in Jerusalem hearing the word of God in their language they could understand. The beginning of the healing of the brokenness of our humanity. And for those of you who were here, do you remember the first three people groups that were mentioned in Acts chapter 2, verse 9? 
the first three people groups in Acts chapter 2, verse 9, on the day of Pentecost, the, the Parthians, the Medes, and the Elamites. There are people of Iran to this very day. And other ethnic groups from North Africa, from Arabia, are mentioned in the book of Acts. The Spirit of God is pouring on, on people from all those lands, Jews and people who had come to believe in the God of the Jews. So we see the work of God starting from the call of Abraham in Genesis 12 and finding its climax in Revelation 22, healing and blessing of the nations. And I'm glad somebody finally liked the Iranians after, after maybe At least one nation is on the good grace. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that the nations are part of the created and redeemed humanity. All nations stand under God's judgment. Any nation can be the agent of God's judgment, like Assyria, Babylon, Persia. And any nation can be the recipient of God's mercy, like the, like the Assyrians in the book of Jonah. And all the nations are under God's control. Now, of course, God has chosen and called Israel as no other nation. God has redeemed Israel in a way he hasn't done for any other nation. He has revealed his law to Israel and has entered into a covenant relationship with Israel. But God's people were called to embody and demonstrate all the uniqueness in their ethical lifestyle, in their worship in their relationship with each other, in the social justice they were supposed to demonstrate. All of that was that the world could see these people have a special God. These people have a special wisdom. We want to know who this God is that is working like this in this nation. And in all these respects, the relationship between God and the historical Israel was unprecedented. He, hadn't done like, he had not done anything like this before. And unparalleled, he had done nothing like this anywhere else. But all of this flows from God's own mission and Israel's role and identity within that mission. God's mission was to bless all the nations of the earth. In fact, in the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis, it's repeated five times in the book of Genesis that all nations will be blessed through Abraham and his descendants. Their unique story of how God was working with Israel was the model of what God would ultimately accomplish through Jesus Christ for the delivery of all people from bondage. Israel, and also the church, they were called to be a nation of priests to the nations. I love this. I love this insight. Please pay attention. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 to 6, the Bible tells us that Israel was called to be a special people, to be a priest to the nations. Now, what is the role of priests? The priests are to teach the law of God to the people, and they brought people's sacrifices to God, the two dimensions of priestly work. So they are the means through which God is known, and they are the means through which people's praises are offered to God. And all of these things that are said of Israel in the Old Testament are said of the church in the New Testament. The Old Testament is filled with references that indicate that the nations are witnessing what God is doing in and to Israel. The nations can receive the blessing in Israel's covenant. The nations will come to know and worship Israel's God. Psalm 66, Psalm 68, Psalm 86, Psalm 96, Psalm 98. And the nations 
will ultimately be included within the identity of Israel as God's people. They will be registered in God's city. They will be blessed with God's salvation. They will be accepted in God's house. They will be called by God's name, and they will be joined by God's people. Now, I know I went through that fast, and I know most of you guys might have tuned out. Let me read that again. And there are Old Testament passages. I don't have time to go into all of them. I'm just going to highlight a couple of them. But when we talk, when we pay attention to what the Bible says about the nations, the Bible says that all nations will be blessed by God's salvation. They will be accepted in God's house, called by God's name, joined with God's people. Now, for example, Pastor Mike Malone, the very first night, gave you an assignment. And he read that passage, actually, at the end of Isaiah chapter 19. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Isaiah 56, verse 7. Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Zechariah chapter 2, I'm going to read that. Zechariah chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people, and I will dwell in your midst. So God has a plan, not just for Israel, but through Israel, through the church, to all the nations. And the prophets in the Old Testament, give two complementary truths. Listen to this. This is very important. On the one hand, whatever Yahweh did among the nations was ultimately for the benefit of Israel, his covenant people. Yet on the other hand, what Yahweh did for Israel was ultimately for the benefit of the nations. You say, say that again, please. <laughs> Remember the first night, I, I, I cited a quote from Ken Myers. And one of the lines in that quote was, the rise and fall of empires is the scaffolding by which God is building his church. God blesses us to be a blessing to all the people, and yet whatever's happening in history is happening with the ultimate purpose of Christ fulfilling his promise that I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Amen. Thank you for that amen, sister. And so we have, there is a unique relationship we have with God as the people of God. Instead of always fearing about what's happening in our world, we need to trust that what is happening is happening because God is, is accomplishing his purposes for the building up of the church. And he's calling us to minister to the world in the name of Christ. Now, many of you might not have been here this weekend. I talked about how Muslims are coming to faith in Christ. Many studies have been done. And various ways that Muslims are coming to Christ, for example, is one of them is whenever there is a rise in radical political Islam, there is extremism and death and destruction. Muslims become open to the gospel. They say, this can't be from God. They, they are drawn to Jesus as the Prince of Peace because, because they say all this death and destruction this can't be from God. This is not true. They, they become disillusioned with Islam whenever radical Islam comes into a Muslim society. And God touches the hearts of Muslims. 
Whenever there is catastrophe, natural disaster, and the church shows up to show the love of Christ, Muslims pay attention. Their hearts become softened toward the gospel. Whenever the church embraces the immigrant community, the refugee community, with love and grace, Muslims soften to the message of Jesus. The rise of modern technology, God is using it through satellite TV, internet, uh, Bible publications and printing, Jesus film. The message is spreading in the Muslim world in a way it has never happened before. So something unprecedented is happening in the nations right now, in the Muslim nations. And the church is at the forefront. God is doing it. But God is also using the church to take this message into the heart of the Muslim world. Again, for those of you who weren't with us this weekend, I've referred to a book a lot at this conference by David Garrison called A Wind in the House of Islam. And there are copies of that book here. But there's another book that I introduced to this church, and it's called Miraculous Movements, How Hundreds of Thousands of Muslims Are Falling in Love with Jesus. And it's mostly about the stories of Muslims in Africa. Jerry uh, Trousdale is the author of this book. And the book starts with a dream of a Muslim imam. Has a dream in which Jesus appears to him, says, um, I am Jesus the Christ, and if you obey me, you will succeed in what you have longed for in your life. And in this dream, Jesus tells him to go to a particular city, wait at the city at the street corner of this particular intersection, and wait for a man who will lead him into truth. This Muslim imam goes from the village to the city, waits all day, and an evangelist walks by him at the end of the day, and the guy says, this is the guy I had in my dream. I need to listen to him. So grabs the evangelist, goes to his house, says, what is this truth? I had Jesus appear to me, telling me to come and listen to you. And so eventually this Muslim imam comes to Christ. Now the author goes on to say, he doesn't mention the name of the African country, But he says that there are hundreds of ministries that are now joining hands to take the gospel to Muslim populations. And he says, in the last few years, this is what we are seeing in our corner of the world. Multiple cases of entire mosques coming to faith. Thousands of ordinary men and women being used by God to achieve seemingly impossible outcomes. Tens of thousands of Muslim background Christians becoming dedicated intercessors who fast and pray for the gospel to penetrate the next community. Muslim people groups that never had even one church among them now have more than 50 churches planted. And in some cases, more than 100 churches within two years of engagement. Former sheikhs, imams, and militant Islamists making up 20% or more of the new Christian leaders in Muslim regions. I go and teach at Iranian conferences for Christians in Iran, house churches, come out of Iran to neighboring countries. I encounter Iranians at one conference, let let me tell you, at one conference I was in, there was a former Shiite cleric who was now a follower of Christ, a former drug dealer, a former arms smuggler, bunch of former addicts, a medical doctor, university professor, businessmen, housewives, and moms and dads, all in one group. These are, these are the kind of people. In, in, in my country of Iran, for example, we believe that we have about a million Iranian Muslims who have responded to the gospel through satellite TV, being witnessed to by friends and relatives, receiving the gospel, in their language, having dreams and visions, praying to Jesus and Jesus healing them, answering their prayers, delivering them from demonic forces. 
And so you might not see that on TV. I said that on Friday night. Reality is not defined by what you watch on, on CNN or Fox News. Reality is defined by the promises of Christ. And the promise is, I want to bless all the nations. And I want to use the church to take that blessing to all the nations. We need to fix our theology and our mission together. That God has chosen us, God has blessed us, but he also has a mission and a task for us. And actually, early Christians reasoned the same way. You know, Christopher Rice points out that, points out that this, is, this is the argument, probably. This is the, this, these are the logical steps that the early church took in taking the gospel to the world. If the God of Israel is the God of the whole earth, if all nations, including Israel, stood under his wrath and judgment, if nevertheless God's will that all nations on earth should come to know and worship him, if he had chosen Israel to be the means of bringing such blessing to all nations, if the Messiah is to be the one who would embody and fulfill that mission of Israel, if Jesus of Nazareth, crucified and risen, is that Messiah, then it's time for the nations to hear the good news. Now, I know that was a long, long list of deductions there. But this is who God is. This is what he assigned Israel to do. This is who Jesus is, the fulfillment of Israel's mission and purpose. Jesus accomplished the task, and he has now commissioned us to go and take this gospel to the nations. And John Stott again says, Mission embraces everything which God has sent his people into the world to do. Now, let me, let me wrap things up. Let's, let's, let's make it practical again. I want to talk to my brothers and sisters in Vero Beach, Florida. Now, I know there is another town here, too. What's the other town? I don't want to... Sebastian. The residents of Sebastian. I don't want to ignore you guys. Not, you, I have no idea how the Spirit of God is working in your heart, in your life, in your relationship to nudge you toward his purposes for your life. My calling is the Iranian world, the Muslim world. God saved me out of the Islamic world, gave me a vision to take it back to the Muslims. Not everybody's called to be a missionary. Not everybody's an evangelist. Not everybody's a pastor. But we can all be friends to somebody who needs a good friend. We can be a counselor to somebody who needs counsel. We can bring hope to somebody who is desperate for some hope in their life. John Piper number of years ago, wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Life. And actually, Piper challenged retired Christians to say this is the greatest time to be involved with mission. Retirement is not just you know, about you know, laying in the sun and playing golf. You have now time and resources to devote to the cause of mission and the global church. So he wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Life, and in it he says this. He has a section called An American Tragedy, How Not to Finish Your One Life. This is Piper. I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now, I know we have retired people here. I hope this doesn't describe you guys here. I don't know. Now they live in 
Punta Gorda, Florida. Is there such a thing as Punta Gorda? Punta, oh, okay. I see. Punta Gorda, Florida. Who is from Punta Gorda here today? Yeah. Where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. At first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let, let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells? That's a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, I protest. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. He has another section. Clean noses and quality family time is not life. Oh, how many lives are wasted by people who believe that the Christian life means simply avoiding badness and providing for the family. So there is no adultery, no stealing, no killing, no embezzlement, no fraud, just lots of hard work during the day and lots of TV and PG-13 videos in the evening during quality family time and lots of fun stuff on the weekend, woven around church mostly. This is life for millions of people, wasted life. We were created for more, far more. There's an old saying, no man ever lamented on his dying bed, I wish I could have spent more time at the office. The point being made is usually that when you're about to do what, the point being made is usually that when you're about to die, money suddenly looks like what it really is, useless for lasting happiness, while relationships become precious. It's true. But that saying about spending less time at the office can be misleading. We need to add this, no one will ever want to say to the Lord of the universe five minutes after death, I spend every night playing games and watching clean TV with my family because I love them so much. I think the Lord will say, that did not make me look like a treasure in your town. You should have done something besides provide for yourself and your family. And TV, as you should have known, was not a good way to nurture your family or your soul. You know, Piper talks about the purpose of life should be gladly making others glad in God. Living to prove he is more precious than life. In his famous book, Let the Nations Be Glad, on mission, Piper says, mission is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Mission exists because worship does not. To spread the worship of Christ in all the earth. Mark Laberton He's now the president of Fuller Seminary. He used to be the pastor of First Press in Berkeley, California. Has a wonderful book called The Dangerous Act of Worship. This is dangerous what you guys do here. I hope you realize that. In his book, he says, Millions of American Christians spend hours in worshiping and yet lead lifestyles indistinguishable in priorities, values, and practices from those in the broader culture. Our central lie is in the discrepancy between the language of worship and the actions of worship. We confess Jesus is Lord, but only submit to the part of Christ's authority that fits our grand personal designs. Doesn't cause pain. Doesn't disrupt the American dream. Doesn't draw us across ethnic or racial divisions. Doesn't add the pressure of too much guilt. Doesn't mean forgiving as we have been forgiven. Doesn't ask for more than a check to show compassion. Despite God's word to the contrary, we think we can say we love God and yet hate our neighbor, neglect the widow, forget the orphan, fail to visit the prisoner, 
ignore the oppressed. It's the sign of disordered love. When we do this, our worship becomes a lie to God. Now, I didn't come here to you know, make everybody go on a guilt trip. You know, I, I am guilty of this like anybody else, and we need to repent of our apathy on a daily basis. And I, I haven't come here to put a heavy burden of do's and do's and duties and tasks. That's not at all what I'm planning, you know, what my intention is. And these authors, that's not the intention. The intention is to say real joy is found in aligning your life with God's dream for you. That's where real joy is found. Real happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment. Now, I went with Mike on the beach, and I was satisfied, and I was happy, and I was fulfilled. It was beautiful. Thank God for the beauty of nature. I'm not against you know, enjoying and relaxing. But if that's all that life is about, comfort and safety and my own security and my own future retirement savings account and mine and my plans and my health and my agenda, if that's all it becomes, then that becomes a lie when we come to church and sing hymns like we did this morning. Give of your sons. Give of your wealth. Give it. Jesus will repay you. If we don't live like that, that hymn was a lie that we just sang. So the point is to find the true joy in obeying Christ. And then finally, and I will close with this, Dan Allender, a favorite author of mine, I, has a wonderful book called To Be Told. And to me, this, this summarizes everything about mission for, for one's life. It matters little what problem, population, or place you tackle. It only matters that something in your soul pulses with eternity to join the cast of characters that ventures to create glory and beauty out of the ashes of the fall. I love his writing. It matters little what problem, population, or place you tackle. Not everybody's called to the mission field, Muslim ministry, ethnic immigrant community, whatever. Not everybody's got a different calling from God. It only matters that something in your soul pulses with eternity to join the cast of characters that ventures to create glory and beauty out of the ashes of the fall. It's redemption that lures you to say yes. Redemption is not narrow or limited to what some call full-time Christian service. Redemption, freeing of the soul and body from death to life, loosening of injustice, Assaulting disease, growing crops for the hungry, comforting the dying, teaching a child to read, delivering a warm greeting to a neighbor is all about saying a divine yes to glory. And for each of us, there is a script written that is contoured to our deepest passion and that reflects our core character and our truest calling. God calls us to certain tasks and jobs, but he doesn't do so because we are uniquely suited to do them. He calls us to the task or job because we are weak, broken, and ill-equipped for the task. What is my calling? It's to make known something about God that is bound to my unique face, name, and story. It is to reveal God through my character. When it comes to being caught by my calling, my options are simple. Please listen. Simple questions. Whom will I serve? In what locale will I serve that community? In that community and in that place, what portion of the fall will I face? 
and what means will I use to address those problems? Our calling in life is always tied to population, place, problems, and process. Whom will I serve? The population. In what locale will I serve that community? The place. In that community and in that place, what portion of the fall will I face? The problems. And what means will I use to address those problems? The process. My calling is to address the lack of the knowledge of God and the scriptures in the Iranian Muslim population through teaching on satellite TV and conferences. That's my life's mission. Equipping and building up of the church in Iran. So that's my problem, my population, my process, and so on and so forth. Those are the questions we need to be asking. God, what aspect of this broken world you want me to engage with? And finally, he says, our deepest dreams should always be about righting wrong and growing good. It's that simple. If our deepest dreams aren't about other people, then we've settled for more, fewer, for mere, I'm sorry, if, if our deepest dreams aren't about other people, then we've settled for mere power and accomplishment, the self-absorption of narcissism. Our deepest and truest dreams must bring good to someone who is without justice, reconciliation, or hope. Everyone is called to battle some unique effects of the fall. For each of us, there is a problem in the world that's meant to first bring us to tears and then bring joy to our soul when it's even temporarily subdued. As complex as our lives seem to be, God's plan is quite simple. He he calls us to begin anywhere, and he will take us where he wants us to go. Start with your strengths and he will reveal and use your weaknesses and follow our desires, and he will grow his passion in us. Let's pray. Jesus, you have a big heart and a big plan and big arms around this world of ours. You are making a family of your brothers and sisters from all nations and tribes and cultures. You are marching forward in history. And you are calling us. You are, you are whispering our name. Father, I pray that today we will see Jesus smile on, on each one of us. That we would say yes to you, not because of a sense of a, of a false guilt trip, self-condemnation, oh, I need to do more. No, no, no. Father, help us to see that Jesus delights in us because he loves us. He's redeemed us. He's made us his people. Help us to see that he's inviting us to join him on an adventure, to join him in singing a new song of redemption, to join him as he moves out on the waters and calls us to get out of the boat of our safety, of our comfort zone and experience exciting life with him in the dangerous storms that he's walking on. Help us to get a sense of his passion for the world, his love for the world and revive us with that sense of passion and love for our neighbors, for our family members, for our friends, for people here in Vero Beach and Sebastian communities. Help us to ask the question, what can I do to bring hope and life 
and faith and redemption to my community. Father, we are not able to change anybody or ourselves, but you are. So change us as we say yes to your spirit, wanting to be instruments in your hands to transform the world. In Christ's name, amen.